You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. I'm Bill Kite, your host, and today our guest is Tom Cardamone, local ecologist and executive director of the Watershed Biodiversity Initiative. Welcome, Tom. Bill, good to be with you. Uh, before we get started too much here, I, I've known you for a long time, and uh, you were the executive director of ACES for quite a while. Um, I don't know whether I want to tell that story or you're going to tell the story about when I ran into your car. <laughs> it was, uh, I was at Tom and Jody's house uh, and uh, got ready to leave. It was raining pretty hard, and I uh, pulled out to leave and ran right into Tom's car. And he didn't get very excited about it at all. He's kind of one of those steady guys, and I, I admire that in Tom. So, Tom, you're currently working on uh, completing a three-year project, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But first... Uh, for folks listening, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would. Sure, Bill. Uh, I first came to Colorado in 1972, uh, found my way to Aspen, and uh, slept under a picnic table at the old high school and signed up the next morning for a class with Colorado University in, it was a summer extension class, in, in uh, putting together a proposal for a wilderness area. All right. And uh, and And today that is a wilderness area. It's the Hunter Frying Pan Wilderness. Uh, and I also met my bride, Jody there and in that class. Cool. Yeah. Uh, times, times have gone on with us and sometimes without us, but it's great the accomplishments you've made and, uh, and, uh, you have a lot to, and we have a lot to be thankful for in, in the work you've done, Tom. Well, thanks, Bill. Um, you're really passionate about biodiversity. And uh, if you could, give us your best shot at what biodiversity is uh, and why it's important in the world, but especially important where we live. I suppose it, it, it's, it's it, in one way of thinking of it, it's the fabric that holds the living earth together. Uh, I certainly became very familiar with that uh, in my days at, at ACES at Hallam Lake, raising a family there and, and looking after that property and properties surrounding it. Um, I'd borrow, too, to answer your question, uh, from E.O. Wilson, um, who describes biodiversity as all of the life in a place. This, the ecosystems that make up the place, the species that make up the ecosystems, and then the diversity of genetics within each species, um, all of those things, part of that fabric that holds, holds the living uh, landscape together. And he just passed away recently, didn't he? Uh, he did. Um, he and, and Tom Lovejoy died on a, uh, a, Tom on a Saturday right at Christmas and, and EO the next day. Uh, and two pioneers in the field, basically. Really, yeah. really. Jody and I knew both of them and, uh, um, Tom Lovejoy much better. Uh, and, and, uh, they were definitely huge inspirations and they did, amazing work in their lifetimes. Tell us a little bit about um, a study and survey that you've been doing. Um, it's a landscape-wide uh, survey, and landscape being the, the uh, Roaring Fork Valley. Uh, and you've looked at the entire Roaring Fork watershed to identify the highest uh, priority areas for restoration and conservation, if I, if I remember right. And uh, Soon this report will be out, and uh, tell us a little bit about that, if you could. Uh, people be uh, 
anxious to, for that report to come out after they hear what you've been doing. Sure, a little bit about the uh, maybe the genesis of, of it um, in in uh, a, a couple of pieces that that help help uh, frame it for me. Um, I helped form the open space program at Pickens County in 1989. It got underway in 1990, um, and and when that program was reauthorized in 2015, 2016, they adopted a biodiversity policy, uh, and and the language essentially is that uh, that they'll use the best available science to protect and restore biodiversity within the whole realm of all of their work, which is oriented towards preserving agriculture and, and, and recreational opportunities. And so it's a, it's a piece of that whole puzzle. Um, and great concept, but how, what, what is the best available science? And, right. and so I went to the best available scientists, in my view, the Colorado Natural Heritage Program, and talked to Dave Anderson down there and said, Dave, what's, uh, how would you approach this? The, the, there's a concept here in our watershed to, to uh, use the best available science. What, what would you do about that? And he said, you need a biodiversity study on a landscape scale. You need to take in your whole watershed and understand what you have. Makes sense to inventory your, your, your biodiversity. Um, and and uh, then you step back and think, okay, our biodiversity includes 278 species of birds and maybe 75 species of mammals and 22 trees and right. thousands <laughs> of mushrooms and insects and invertebrates and, and uh, fishes. The list goes on, but it's thousands of species altogether. How do you wrap your arms around, arms around that in a short period of time? Uh, and and uh, the, the first step then and also, let me, I'll just say as an aside, an important aside, that it was also at a time when there was growing concern about diminishing numbers of elk and deer and bighorn sheep. Their numbers down 20, 30, 50, 75 percent, depending on the group and, and the location. Um, so there was impetus, uh, concern, and, um, and then this biodiversity policy. Um, and so we identified... Um, the key stakeholders, and the whole community is the stakeholder, but the key stakeholders that we identified included the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the Pickens County Open Space and Trails Program, and four nonprofits that are educationally oriented, the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, the Aspen Valley Land Trust, uh, Aspen Global Change Institute, and the Roaring Fork Conservancy. A lot of folks. A lot of people. And, and and the point was to get together with, with people ahead of the program instead of after the fact and say, this is what, this is what we came up with off in the corner. Right. We said, let's get all the main players together and, and sit around a table and, and decide how you actually do frame a, sh a, a fairly rapid assessment of your biodiversity. And I remember we met at the Forest Service uh, headquarters in Glenwood Springs, sat around a big table and grappled with that question over several meetings um, and, and landed on the idea that elk, deer, and bighorn sheep were of concern on people's radar. Uh, they were um, species of, about which we knew a lot already, and they're wide-ranging species, covered a lot of ground. If we could identify their most important habitat, 
to protect and restore if that's necessary, um, that we would be casting a net over a, not all of the biodiversity in our watershed, but a lot of it. Um, and so we, we made that decision. Uh, and, and just to, to um, describe the, the, the players here, I mentioned the, the science team, those eight groups. Watershed Biodiversity Initiative is the nonprofit organization that I started, and I've got a board of directors of five, um, to be the orchestrator of the study. We needed a nonprofit that wasn't distracted by a lot of different things, that was a single purpose nonprofit to engage the Natural Heritage Program under contract to do the study. And so we became that entity, and, and the funds would flow through us to pay to pay the bills and get the study done. Um, so that's, 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 in a nutshell, the genesis and the, and, the, and the reason we focused on those species was because we could conceive of doing a, a two-year study that has now taken three because of COVID. Um, but right. we're, as you said, we're wrapping up uh, in the next couple of weeks. Well, landscapes don't care about political boundaries or what agency manages them because we're talking about a landscape where biology is the is the root uh, of what you're really worried about. Correct. That's that's right. And and even um, at the beginning, that was a piece of the conversation. There's so often when we're considering a decision that needs to be made as a community about a development proposal or a need for conservation. It's it's very narrowly focused on a small patch of the landscape, right? And and um, and to have that big landscape perspective is so important. Uh, just looking at a, a study of, about black bear and how, how how important it is for them to have um, big patches of unfragmented landscape in order to thrive, um, and and uh, and that holds for many species and and, and uh, uh, so the the notion that you need to study a whole landscape in this case the Roaring Fork drainage is 928,000 acres it's the frying pan it's the Roaring Fork it's the crystal and all the various sub drainages right and really um, landscapes are, this one's a pretty complicated landscape we live in a beautiful area we know that sometimes it's hard to uh, put into words why we why we are so happy to live here but the geology here in itself is very complicated as well and so the fra the idea of fragmentation uh, could you go into that just a little bit why that's so important that pe so people can understand uh, what what that's all about sure um, well and on the on the positive side um, you're, you're right. We're, we're, we're fortunate to live here. Along with that comes some responsibility to be good caretakers, good stewards, um, good citizens of this whole landscape, as Leopold, Elder Leopold would have said. Um, and, and we have elevations ranging from around 5,000 feet to over 14,000 feet. We have different north, south, east, and west facing aspects. There's this tremendous diversity of ecosystems and, um, uh, and opportunities for different species. So we have, uh, in, in many ways, I regard this as sort of a Noah's Ark of diversity here. And, and, and as climate change continues to march forward at us, uh, with us, um, having all of those opportunities for 
species to adapt and move to so that once, and I believe we will, get, can, get, get this under control and start uh, modifying the effects of climate change and buffering them and pushing them back, um, we will have been the Noah's Ark and then providing places where animals and plants can be resilient and then, uh, and then spread back out onto a landscape that's a little bit more stable. You know, I've said it before that um, life is about uh, really relationships and timing. And so it, it seems to me that the timing of starting your um, your biodiversity nonprofit was was fortuitous. I mean, it seems that, that it was time to start what you're doing. Tell us about that a little bit when you started up. You're, you're right, Bill. Um, maybe stepping back to a global perspective, a lot of information in the news these days about birds in North America going from over maybe 10 billion species, or 10 billion individuals, excuse me, to 2.9 billion having disappeared in the last 50 years. Wow, that's so a lot. Almost 30% of our bird numbers have just evaporated. Yep. Loss of habitat, agricultural practices um, are, are perhaps the, the, the greatest reasons uh, for that. Insect species... Um, down in some cases 75 percent over the last few decades uh, talking with the folks just over the hill at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab in Gothic um, they've been studying pollinators at um, in the subalpine and alpine area and in the last 30 years they've seen a 30 percent drop in pollinators uh, be, huh? that's a lot again yeah there's no habitat loss there's no agriculture over there there's but they're still suffering losses I have a hunch, having conversed with Ian Billick about that, that it's, you know, it's, it's um, things going out of whack. Right. Plants that the pollinators res- respond to or, or depend on are blooming earlier because it's warmer, and the pollinators are responding to day length, and so they show up too late for the their preferred plants, and that may be a part of why they're suffering. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the, on the global scale... Uh, um, alarm about loss of species, um, extinction rate a hundred to a thousand times what it was before there were so many of us around, um, and then locally the elk and the deer and the bighorn sheep, uh, sort of the canary in the coal mine. Right. You're listening to KDNK's public affairs program for land's sake, and today our host, or <laughs> I'm your host today, our guest is Tom Cardamone. Tom, your website says that your vision is for protection, restoration, and enhancement of natural biodiversity on a landscape scale to enrich the ecological vitality of the Roaring Fork watershed. How is that going to be possible to enrich the ecological vitality? That's a that's a big question. Uh, first, by taking the inventory, of course, and knowing what we have seeing where the most important habitat blocks are and where the connectivity is amongst those blocks so that they can retain their vitality with species uh, being able to move and genes being able to mix and and adaptation uh, allowed as again with climate change we one of the layers of our mapping and and so not to we won't get into the weeds with exactly what the study is about but it um we went out on the landscape and studied um, 
as many as 200 different plots on our hands and knees, identifying everything that was in a 50-meter plot. And then we figured out what the reflectance, um, the light reflectance signature of that spot was, and look for that image through satellites, and then we're able to extrapolate what we found on the ground to the whole landscape. So, so that's part of how the mapping takes place. We, we also uh, uh, relied on the Nature Conservancy, and they've done a resilient landscapes mapping exercise similar to what I've just described, and, um, and they're identifying places that are, that are key. But there, there are about a dozen layers that go into the map that show us where the highest priority places are in our watershed. They're being, they were, they were produced early December. The, the science team that I described is test driving them. Also, we had access to about a dozen big ranches in our watershed. We're test driving with them, getting feedback before we complete, complete the fine tuning. Um, and as you probably know, science is never done. Exactly, but, right. Yeah, and this is definitely science. And, and you know, in archaeology, we call it, you know, ground proofing, right. going over to make sure what we saw from the air or what we have uh, uh, hints of is happening there really is. And that's that's what we're... You know, you ground pound until you until you get what you're looking for, or to what you're. Sometimes you get surprises and, and expectations that you have don't don't pan out. Have there been any surprises in in this study that you can think of? There, uh, there have. Um, one of them uh, that comes to mind right away is is uh, irrigated agriculture in our watershed represents maybe two percent of the landscape, but to us who live here, it seems like bigger. Th- portion than that because it's along our roadways it's along the rivers and streams where we live so we see it and we see the wildlife there and and the surprise I guess in the in the revelation has been that although ecologically irrigated ag isn't necessarily the best food source for wildlife it's pretty monoculture you know alfalfa and timothy and a few other grasses um, they're big big um, big animals are relying on it and um, and so we've had to have a bit of a, uh, a discussion back and forth about it's not native plant life. Do we include it or not? And we've ultimately decided to value ag lands, both non-irrigated and irrigated, because they provide, maybe more importantly, they provide food because we see the animals attracted to them, but it's not the best food. Maybe more importantly, they provide security of quiet open space that's not generally disturbed by other activities um, and they provide connectivity from one side of a valley to the other from public land across ag land to other public land parcel and the, and the problem as i see is is when you start infilling a lot of places that were that were ag land before then you're going to have a problem of of separating that connectivity and and also the animals that are used to going there where, where do they go i mean that's right. uh, so the, we as humans interrupt that na- natural cycle a lot don't we we I, we tend to we tend to and i, I mean, an example <clears throat> that i tend that i think of is um castle creek where elk are wintering at 10,000 feet i wow. I, th- I think they would prefer to be wintering on the sunny side of the roaring fork valley in the shrublands, um, but to get from the, the vicinity of Toklat to Red Mountain and Sunnyside and, and the area above um, um, uh, Starwood 
is a challenge. There's a lot of stuff in the way. Right. Um, yeah. And and so the maps we're producing, they also have one layer is called the landscape disturbance index. It shows yeah. us where the people are already, right. so that we can, so that we don't go thinking, well, let's make let's make a migration corridor through what is now an airport or a golf course or a subdivision. Right. That obviously is is not workable, but it but it does show us the places where those kinds of things are still possible. And elk I, are so adaptable. I mean, they were originally a plains animal, were they not? They were. Yeah, that high whistle is carries well across open space. It doesn't carry well through a forest. And yeah. and uh, and the rump patch that's so visible, you know, they're made for the grass, the grasslands. And and here they are with us. And, and just they, they are just an amazing animal. Having hunted them, uh, I have great respect for elk and their ability to adapt. Um and landscape scale again, because that's that's something that's tangible. That's the the water runs through it in such a way that it's it all is reflected by that particular landscape, and so that's why you pick the landscape scale then, right? Right, and and our mapping is there, there are layers that show us where private land is and where the BLM and the Forest Service and municipal lands and open space and trails properties, et cetera. So we know we know where the boundaries are, but but the habitat value mapping is blind to the boundaries. Right, exactly, yeah. Because the animals are as well. Right, and and they are used to going to certain places that it's natural to them. When those places are, their ability to get there interrupted, then they ha- they definitely have to adapt. And I guess that's that would be the next question then, is um, when we see th- certain things happening then to the habitat and to the the flora and fauna on on a particular piece of land is that the reason when we start seeing problems that we want to enrich that ecological vitality if you see uh yeah when when the landscape is deteriorating and we've through our through our mapping which also includes a a, uh, you know google earth layer you can look and see where disturbance has taken place on public lands in some cases and and we're actively talking with those managers, and they're saying, "Yeah, that that area needs some attention." Um, it, we uh, we had some management practices decades and decades ago that um, that didn't work out so well, and and to go back in there would be would be helpful. Another another piece of that, just um, for breath here, is that is we have a, a wetness index for the whole watershed, and. And this watershed is wetter than average, it's, which is a good thing. Right. The crystal, interestingly, is less wet than average for the state of Colorado. It's below 2%. And 2% is sort of the average of, of the land, 2% of the acreage of the landscape. Um, we, um, on, on top of those three species, the focal species, elk, deer, and bighorn sheep that I mentioned, we've, we have kind of a place marker for four others that represent other parts of biodiversity, birds being one of them, pollinators another, and I mentioned the Independence Pass Foundation has started a pollinator study from Aspen to the top of the pass, which is going to be very helpful. Um, and um, black bear is another species which we're going to pull in, um, partly because of their connection to fragmented landscapes and how they thrive when they're not fragmented. And and the fourth is um, beaver, back to wetlands. What we know from experiments in uh, Washington State is that um, 
by reintroducing beaver where they don't have conflict with people, um, you can t make a tremendous uh, contribution to the wetness of a watershed. Um, and uh, putting pencil to paper uh, and, and being and subject to criticism uh, uh, and critique, uh, I found that you could you could increase the wetland the wet carrying capacity or, or holding capacity of our watershed by two Rudai reservoirs. Wow! <laughs> if you put the beaver only where they would fit without conflicting with human activity. Interesting. So. Interesting. Uh, I wish we had more time, Tom. I really appreciate you coming in today and and educating us on something I think is very important to all of us who live here. And uh, thanks again. Appreciate it very much. Good to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to KDNK's uh, Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. Our next For Land's Sake show will be March the 14th at 430 We've switched, or 4 o'clock, excuse me, we've, I'm even confused. We've switched to 4 o'clock on Mondays, the second Monday of every month. And so listen next week, same time, same place. Until then, whatever you do to Mother Nature, do it for land's sake. bird note. The common raven is our largest songbird, and it has a voice to match its size. We've visited ravens in the company of wolves, and in myth, taking control of the tides, changing the course of a river, even placing the sun in the sky. Ravens are seen as tricksters in many traditions. But ravens have their softer side, too. Common ravens probably mate for life, 
and in the same way that a human couple sometimes has to work to maintain their attachment, a pair of ravens exhibits behaviors that strengthen their relationship or pair bond. Throughout the year, a pair of ravens may soar wingtip to wingtip, swooping in unison, tumbling through the sky. During courtship, the pair will often sit side by side, gently preening each other's feathers. And during that ritual, they may make these warbling sounds. Raven nestlings sometimes make this same sound after they've been fed. Compared to the usual raucous raven calls, this one is soothing to adults and to their young. It's called a comfort sound. For Bird Note, I'm Michael Stein. Because we are living in a chemical world, and I'm a chemical.